0: Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedu, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... If you could do anything, with your course, what would you do? What do you do so well face-to-face that you can't possibly imagine how it could be done online? So we spend the beginning parts of the conversation with the faculty building trust, helping them understand that we do have the ability to help them reconceive of these really difficult pieces um, before we even start thinking about learning objectives or assignments or activities.
1: Hey, it's Maria and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your families are all doing well and staying healthy. My guest today started her career as a first-grade teacher before she moved into K-12 instructional design and eventually higher education. While pursuing her PhD in learning technologies at the University of North Texas, she co-founded an organization that offers an alternative to the traditional instructional design business model, an unbundled fee-for-service approach with a focus on serving faculty and students. I'm thrilled to introduce to you today Whitney Kilgore, co-founder and chief academic officer at iDesign, an organization that partners with universities and colleges to build grow and support online and blended courses and programs they are passionate about helping faculty harness the potential of emerging technologies to design courses and degrees that make an impact whether they are fully online flipped adaptive blended or competency-based from statewide university systems to private colleges their custom solutions pair instructional design with technologies to enable great teaching and learning. During our discussion, you will learn about LX Pathway, an educational resource for those interested in becoming an instructional technologist, learning architect or online instructor who designs and supports high quality online teaching and learning experiences. LX Pathway offers coursework geared toward the needs of aspiring instructional designers, technology professionals, faculty, and teaching and learning staff, who will be able to receive micro-credentials on the way to earning a certificate for each career path. You will also learn about course market, a new paradigm in continuing education. Course market enables colleges and universities to transform existing courses and content into certificates and credentials that enable working learners to develop in-demand skills and competencies for the future of work. If you are an educator or faculty, this episode will offer you insights and resources to help you develop your virtual presence and create student-centered learning experiences. If you are a student about to start college or university, or go back in the fall, you will gain a deeper understanding of the learner experience and how instructional design can help unlock the human element in online courses so you can continue to develop cognitively and stay engaged socially during your higher education journey. In addition to being the chief academic officer at iDesign, Whitney teaches in the learning technologies program at the University of North Texas. You can learn more about Whitney and iDesign at iDesignEDU.org. But first, let's dive into the future of instructional design in higher education and a plethora of resources to help you develop workforce-relevant skills and competencies. Hello, Whitney. Welcome to Impact Learning.
0: Hello, Maria. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So, Whitney, you and I have not met, have not actually talked before today, so I want to ask a question about your childhood. What is your favorite memory related to learning something new or learning something on your own?
0: There's so many to choose from, Um, but uh, in thinking about that, I think I was a big sister, and my poor little sister had to play school. (laughs) <laughs> with, with me all the time. Uh, I think I knew at a really young age that I really wanted to be involved in teaching and learning. And that's probably why we built tables and chairs and created our own little schoolhouse in the, in the upstairs of our house. Um, so yeah, we had great times just spent together working through problems and writing assignments. And uh, it was quite fun. I, I say poor her because she was, you know, put into that position only because she was
1: younger. Had she been older, she probably would have been the teacher and I would have been the student. Right. What did you learn by teaching your sister in such an early, I guess, uh, early age? I think probably how to um, teach really
0: obstinate, difficult people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only kidding. Uh, Half kidding, really. Um, No, we, we, We had very different upbringings, even though we were in the same house. And so that was our time to really bond and spend time together. Uh, I grew up playing soccer and um, water skiing. She grew up riding horses and doing um, things with my mother, very separate. So um, it was a really interesting childhood from
1: that perspective. That's very interesting. So different experiences, different Mm -hmm. preferences, and then coming together like to learn something. What was... um the thinking around education and learning in your family? So neither of my parents finished college,
0: and um, but my grandfather had actually uh, completed his master's at MIT and had gone to Cornell prior to that. And my great-grandfather had a PhD in chemistry from Cornell and was um, the head of R&D for B.F. Goodrich way back in the day. And so there was um, this opportunity to get to know the family history or genealogy, and so my great-grandfather actually has a number of patents. Um, the outer covering of the golf ball, the original deicer for airplanes, um, the impervious sheet metal on a Heliostat balloon. So when you see the Goodyear blimp, those original designs all came from him. So um, I, I really enjoyed getting to know that history in our family that wasn't necessarily what I grew up with. It was the extension of... Uh, where I came from
1: very nice and uh, what did you decide to study in college Uh,
0: so when I first went off to college I graduated high school when I was 16 so I was a little younger than some of the other students and went to um, went to college to study to become a physical therapist And actually pursued the field of healthcare for quite some time before I made the shift to education. And really, I think it was a professor, a chemistry professor I had at a community college, who sat me down one day and said, I really need to have a talk with you, you're going to get a B in my class. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, that's okay, I've earned the B. And she said, I know, but I also have looked at your transcript and I know this is the first one you've had since you've been here. And that can be troublesome for, for young people like yourself. Um, but she later made me a supplemental instructor for chemistry, even though I wasn't the A student. And it was that opportunity to help others better understand what they were struggling with in chemistry that I think started me down the path uh, back to
1: education. I can see that. Yes, I started tutoring. I love chemistry and physics. and I mean, I love all the subjects, but I started tutoring just to help out you know, kids that they were either in my class or a year younger. And this is when I realized that I can help them. Yeah. And that gave me the confidence. And that's what I wanted to do for a very long time to become a teacher.
0: Yeah, and I think that's why I originally wanted to pursue medicine, was simply just to help others. And when I realized I could do it in a different way, um, yeah. it really opened up uh, my
1: thinking. Mm-hmm. So what, uh, what's your first job after college?
0: Um, after college, when I finished my bachelor's, I went straight into K-12 education and was a first grade teacher for a number of years. I loved these darling little people, teaching them to read and to help them tie their shoes. It was really a wonderful time in my life. Um, while I was teaching first grade, I actually had our fourth child. And, um, and so that was just an exciting experience, um, being pregnant in a classroom full of little six-year-olds is pretty exciting for them too. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Why are you getting fat? Um, but, um, but we we were blessed with a really lovely family and, um, and it was a great experience being around those, those
1: darling little people. But then from, uh, from a teacher, you, uh, became an instructional technology specialist. What prompted this change? Yeah, so there's a couple of things I guess. So I was that nerdy kid that went to computer camp when I
0: was 12. Computers were brand new, so it was. Um, I'm a little older than um, than most of your listeners probably, but um, but I went to a computer camp that was run by the University of Florida and learned how to do some programming and music writing using the computer to help with that. So I always had a passion for technology. I've I ran my dad's books. He was an entrepreneur. He had his own business. And so I did all of his accounting for him on the computer uh, when I was younger, just because I really liked to play with the computer. Um, So that played a big part in my teaching. So yes, I taught first grade and that story is always kind of cutesy. But I also had built out my own HTML pages, my entire curriculum was online. All of the homework sheets were PDF and accessible for the children to be able to download if they lost their homework sheet. And this was in a, a rural area in South Texas where most of our students were on free or reduced lunch. So it was a Title I school. Most, in, most families didn't have technology at home but the kids would walk to the local library in order to submit their spelling words to me electronically via email um, because they liked the idea of being able to do it. Uh, so it's it's interesting when people talk about access today, this was back in 2000. So uh, uh, not a lot has changed in 20 years. We're still having those same conversations about access
1: in rural areas. Yes, it's just different or different context, but it's the same thing. Not access to resources, access to, you know, information, internet, wireless is is still a precious gift. It's not, it's not available to everyone.
0: Yeah. And you asked about how I became the instructional technology specialist. It was actually sort of serendipitous. We were doing a project in my classroom. I had picked up from the librarian, five different baskets of books about Texas history, and I had organized the baskets. So there were certain themes. And the students just kind of gathered around the different baskets and they started reading the books and I had them start crafting the characters and writing a script for a play that they would produce. It was Texas public schools week and my classroom was really quiet. The lights were out. There was the smell of popcorn and every other first grade classroom, little brothers and sisters and everything else, it was just chaos, right? And the superintendent walked by and he said, wow it's really calm in here, what's going on? And I said, oh, this is the movie that we produced. And so he stood there and watched their entire movie. We saw the story of the Alamo, the Karankawa Indians in Texas, the history of, of a lot of our, our Texas leaders. And uh, he scheduled a meeting with me the very next day in his office. <laughs> so the, the path from classroom teacher to instructional technologist was really driven by that opportunity to,
1: to showcase what my students were able to do. Yeah, because you were already designing instructional material, but also experience. Very good. You made a much uh, much bigger jump from K-12 to higher ed. How did this come about? So they often
0: say it's not really what you know, it's who you know. Uh, One of the parents of one of my students all those years ago told me one day you're going to come work for me. And I said, I don't even know what you do. There's no way that's ever going to happen. But after I had had this position in instructional technology in the school district, I actually was recruited uh, to SunGuard Higher Education on a remote academic services team, which did extensive instructional design, training and support for faculty all over the United States on every learning management system at that time. So, um, So that was quite the adventure.
1: What intrigued you in this kind of job in higher ed?
0: Um, you know, it's interesting. I guess it, part of it was still that passion for technology, but it was also the thought of being intentional in the design of what was being put out in front of students. So um, if you think about technology tools and their functionality and you limit your creativity by those things, then you're not pushing the boundaries of the affordances of those tools. And I really think, I saw it as an opportunity to help others kind of extend their understanding of the art of the possible. Just because there are constraints doesn't mean that there aren't also workarounds or affordances or other ways to accomplish the same things. And I think that's where the notion of digital digital pedagogy versus, um, you know, face-to-face or classroom pedagogical practices really intrigued me because it was such a new area. I mean, we were still... Writing HTML code back then. I mean, yes, there were LMSs, but they were actually called CMSs, content management systems back then. And -hmm. then LCMSs, right, on that journey. So um, so the design, the aesthetic piece of the design wasn't as flexible as it is now. And uh, because of those limitations, folks had a little trouble uh, stretching their own creative legs, so to speak.
1: Mm -hmm. And as you are, Your work is very creative, a lot of design, a lot of things that you basically learn and and try and create and build. In parallel, you continue your education. I found that very intriguing. You did your master's and then you did your PhD. What is the story behind uh, this lifelong learning and acquiring degrees? (laughs) So it starts with a confession.
0: (laughs) The confession is when I went to school, when I was probably too young to go to university, I did not do very well. And so I went back to school later in life and went through community college. And I, I have to give props to the community college professors out there who have such an impact on people who maybe don't fully believe in themselves in that moment that they come back to school to be able to put me on a path that felt limitless, right? So then, so then I, did, I went into the bachelor's degree and then uh, onto the master's and it took me a long time to find the right program, I knew I wanted to continue. Um, And so I did a certificate at George Washington University, which I really enjoyed. Um, And when I finally found the program at UNT, I was actually in cohort number one. And I had been looking for some more flexible format for the PhD and UNT had a distributed program that offered an annual cohort meeting. So you still had the opportunity to connect and um, build community within your cohort while being able to do the work remotely which was incredibly helpful to me because i traveled uh, both domestically and internationally at that time building online programs all over the world
1: Mm -hmm. and what was the topic or the subject uh, of your phd learning technologies what aspect of learning technologies
0: So it takes broad strokes, if you will, in the UNT program. So we touch on instructional design, emerging technologies, AI. A lot of the coursework is what you would expect if you wanted somebody to have that deep background in learning technologies. Specifically, my dissertation focused on online informal learning communities and looking at how those might also serve as professional development or lifelong
1: learning for educators. Interesting ideas. Interesting. Very interesting. If I think of how much of that we use today, of course, it's not that long ago, but still you are ahead of the time of what's happening today. And somehow during your PhD, you decided to co-found (laughs) iDesign. Yes. What is now the story behind that? (laughs) So there are
0: times in your life when you meet really brilliant people and uh, ideas start to formulate. And the timing is right, and you're ready to take a risk. And growing up with an entrepreneurial father and being at that point where I was ready for something more interesting on the journey, I felt like uh, what Paxton Ryder, our CEO, and Ned Stone, our COO, and I were talking about was something that was a better fit for the world we live in today. And so that, that's really kind of based on a couple of different things. So um, I actually met Paxton when I worked with him at a previous company, and we worked at Academic Partnerships, which is one of the large online program management firms. And the business model within the the large OPMs is typically a revenue share, where the OPM takes on the bulk of the upfront costs in order to help both build the program and, and market it, and bring students to the program, and then later retain them. But the um, that business model is fundamentally flawed in a lot of ways. It's, it's right for some universities. It is not right for all universities. And so when the conversation started, Paxton just really felt strongly that we needed alternative business models. We needed to be able to look at the opportunity to offer up great services for a fair fee and then our partners would hire us again right if we're all focused on doing the right thing then good things come from that so the business model being more flexible for universities so they could pick and choose what they need instead of being sold a box uh, that you know the black box with the word services on the outside of it with the percentage of tuition going away um it just doesn't seem like it's built to last so and then my my concern was always that we should be doing more for and with our faculty who are making this transition from teaching face-to-face to teaching in many cases fully online sometimes blended um but that jump is a significant um struggle for many and um we just didn't see any other online program management firm taking a really Thoughtful approach to instructional design, thus the name I Design. Uh, the The bulk of what we do is focused on the, the faculty experience, providing them with white glove concierge support so that they can then design student centered learning with our help.
1: Mm-hmm. So, in addition to the instructional design, let's say what helps them to develop their courses, you also offer additional or complementary services and programs as you refer to them. Give us an example of what is like additional service that you may offer, whether it's directly to a department of the college or university or maybe with a faculty. Yeah, so from an academic services perspective, we provide
0: instructional design and development of full degree programs, certificates, um, some of those continuing ed pieces as well. So sometimes it's a continuing ed shopper working with rather than the dean or the department chair within a program. In addition to that, we offer live teaching support. So for those faculty that are new to teaching online, that can be a really helpful service to have that learning architect stay with you and guide you and be your Your advisor, if you will, to answer questions when things are challenging and to keep the cadence of the communication going with the students and the feedback rich and robust. So um, then after the course has been taught, we are the only instructional design and or OPM in the world that has a partnership with Quality Matters that allows us through our process of continuous improvement to put those courses through a Quality Matters certification process. So So um, when universities are concerned about whether or not they're meeting or or exceeding high quality standards in online learning, we're able to make that um, pretty clear for them. Um, And continuous improvement is typically done on about an annual basis to ensure that changes in content or changes in technology and, um, and differences in student experiences and feedback from the learner and the data from the LMS can all be taken into
1: account in the design of
0: the program over time.
1: Mm-hmm. So in your assessments and your continuous improvement, uh, what kind of things are you looking, uh, uh, you know, to improve? And are you getting uh, feedback from the students, from the faculty, just to get an idea of where we talk about continuous improvement of a course? What aspects are we talking about? And how does this work in reality? It's really all of
0: the things that you said and maybe a little bit more. So our first job is to meet with the faculty member before a 30-day window has closed, so to speak, after the course has ended. We want to capture their insights from the teaching experience as quickly as possible, even though we may not implement those changes until before the course runs again, because they will forget um, what those little nuanced details are. And that can be anything from, there were a couple of assignments where students sent a lot of emails seeking clarification. Those are really good indicators that assignment directions might need to be updated or an exemplar needs to be included or rubric could be added. Um, Many of those things we, we work toward having uh, perfect in the in the initial design of a course, but we are working with humans, and we're taking them down a road that sometimes they're not excited about going down, right? Not everybody wants to teach online. So um, so it is a bit of a I'll call it the Texas two step, right? Where our learning architects serve as that faculty whisperer to really help them, Um, understand the affordances of what they can do and how they can do those things that they think they can't do that they do so well in their face-to-face classroom how that can actually happen in an online learning environment Um, and sometimes there are trade-offs right if we if we want to go down a particular road we we trade off a few things Mm -hmm. so the initial assessment is done or the initial data gathering is done with the faculty member to capture their insights we also have a survey that we developed to capture feedback from the students what content pieces resonated with you and why um, what didn't what, what was amiss? Um, and many times, uh, that data is really the most powerful information that we can gather, uh, that combined with the instructor insights. And then we take a look at everything from uh, item analysis on exam questions or, te- or quiz questions, um, the data from the LMS that lets us know Um, submission date and time in addition to perhaps um, the the feedback that the instructor was giving on particular assignments if there's some consistent feedback that has to be given every time perhaps that can be woven into the instructions there's a lot of really nuanced pieces to this so it's it's heavy on the qualitative but it is also quantitative in nature
1: Mm -hmm. and as i'm thinking about that now this seems to be like an ongoing process i can only imagine that you know one year later, two years later, we need to continue to evolve the content, how we deliver it, how we engage the experience. So there is a, I see that as an ongoing process. And that's why it's important to have like a partner versus here is your package, take it and good luck. Right. And I think the the funny thing is, it's not only, Um,
0: does the content need to be updated or the directions or assignments? Um, there, there are things that change, right? Pluto's a planet, Pluto's not a planet, that kind of thing needs to be changed. But faculty start to become more confident. So after they've taught it the first time, right? And they start to feel a little bit more comfortable in the learning management system. They then want to try new things oftentimes. And so many times when we do continuous improvement, it's to allow them to pull in a new, LTI tool or an extension of the LMS, or to start thinking through how they might facilitate breakout groups in a synchronous session, or do case studies in a different way using a third-party tool. So oftentimes, um, much of our continuous improvement is focused in those areas.
1: So you're training faculty? We would never call it training. How would you call it?
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, if you have training on campus, how many people show up? 20 might sign up but three might show up. So we're, we're hesitant to say that word training, but I'd, I'd say what our learning architects are able to do with the subject matter experts or faculty members is be that personalized professional coach uh, that helps them really reconceive both their pedagogical approach and the design of their course in a really thoughtful way that's so uniquely wrapped up in what they teach and how they teach it, that it's like the um, covert mission is training. The the overt mission is to design a beautiful,
1: student-centered, rich experience. Beautiful. So you mentioned learning architect. Is that a different role and person uh, from the instructional designer? So that's a really good question. When we think of instructional design,
0: we think of it as a team-based sport. So when we take that team approach to design, we have the learning architect who helps conceive of the blueprint for the course, thus the name architect makes sense. Behind the learning architect, and not necessarily interfacing with a faculty member, but working to help the learning architect get this all put together seamlessly, is an instructional technologist that does the build in the LMS, integrates third-party tools, embeds video, ensures ADA compliance, as well as copyright compliance, and makes sure that everything's accessible for students. So we take care of that ADA piece too. Then we've got graphic design, We have a quality review team that's totally separate with copy editing and and project management. And for some of our partners, we offer video post-production services. I'll retract that and say, for all of our partners, we offer video post-production services. For some of our partners, we deliver on that service. (laughs) It tends to be expensive and quick to break the budget. So um, for those who feel that having video post-production is really important, that also includes the accessibility pieces like transcripting and closed captioning.
1: So uh, more and more, we're seeing partners that, that need that help. Now I can see all the unbundled kind of services you talked about, and then they can pick and choose based on the budget they have, but also how they want to start or what the course is for, so they can pick and choose different things. Which is is it's always nice to have flexibility and also options. Yeah, I think giving them choice and the ability
0: to figure out what works best for the institution is is what's working best for us.
1: I've heard you talk about um, like building a global network of learning designers, and that is, I think it's really global. They are sitting in, you know, in different countries. How did you start with this idea, and how big is this network? So, you know, really,
0: iDesign is the largest instructional design shop that is all U.S.-based, So we do have, uh, I think, two or three individuals now who live in another country, but they actually are U.S. citizens. They married a Norwegian or something like that, right, and ended up being swept away. Um, (laughs) But um, actually, I I did a lot of international and global design work before I came to iDesign. And and that experience was really enriching and amazing. So I personally have a network of international folks that I know really well. But yeah, I design as a company is a U.S.-based instructional design shop, and we don't outsource
1: anything to um, any sort of third-party firm. And uh, what are their qualifications? How do you find uh, the best, I guess, uh, learning designers? So when we first started out, because this journey has been uh, from
0: startup to now full grown organization, um, when we first started out, it was very easy to post a little note on LinkedIn and say, I'm hiring. Let me know if you're interested in doing some, some design work. And I'd probably get 10 or 11 people that would write me back. And I'd talk to probably seven or eight of them. Then I'd find one person maybe that was a good fit for the project and what we wanted to do. Um, but that doesn't scale well. Uh, We're a team of 180 plus instructional designers to date. Uh, We've been a remote team since the very, very beginning. So this change in the COVID world has not necessarily impacted our work, except that we have the introduction of our children at home, which is nuanced and different for everybody on the team, right? Um, But I think building the team to scale, we really had to think about a lot of different things. Um, How were we going to, at scale, interview? right so um it it, because if it takes talking to 10 people ish to find one how does that work when you're trying to grow a business so we went to we have a a sandbox in canvas so we went to our lms and we built out an entire course that tells our candidates who we are as an organization uh, the different roles that they are looking to apply for and has a little video vignette from a couple of our team members telling them what a day in the life of a learning architect or an instructional technologist is really like so they can watch that video and then they go forward and they can take a 10 question quiz the quiz helps us because um, it asks them a lot of different questions some they have to answer with video some they have to answer with html code some they have to answer with rewriting learning objectives in order to match what the assessment or assignment is or vice versa so, um, it just helps us get a better sense of their actual skills and abilities rather than going into an interview, which is often not a good look at skills and abilities. And while we do really need to see a portfolio of people's work, we were often finding that a portfolio project might be a team project as well. And so then you're seeing the strengths of five people, not the one person you're interviewing. So, um, by posting our jobs then at, uh, on higher ed jobs, we went from you know, getting a couple of folks that were interested to going to over 500 the first time we posted, and, um, and because we're remote, everybody, everybody wants to work remote, and everyone thinks they're an instructional designer. So um, sorting through that list was quite interesting. So we took the 500 that came in through Higher Ed Jobs. We enrolled them all in this course in Canvas, and guess how many took the quiz? How many? 187. Wow. Wow so it did it did what we needed it to do it filtered out the people who maybe weren't qualified in addition to it gave us good data it gave us good information that we were then able to evaluate internally with a rubric and then sort so that we knew who to start talking to first so that's how we overcame the the scaling problem uh inside our organization
1: i love how you use technology and what i would call probably interview experience (laughs) To really find, you know, the people who want to work for you and do this kind of work, but also are skilled, have done this work. So like finding, I guess, a good fit both ways, skills, interest, and I want to work for this company. This is very, very nice to hear.
0: Good. Yeah. And now we have our new project that we've launched uh, fairly recently. It's called LX Pathways. So it's a competency based choose your own adventure, if you will, pathway to careers. So what we have on that site is um, an opportunity to level up to become an instructional technologist or a learning architect. And the competencies are all available as individual courses. So little bite-sized opportunities for learning that test your knowledge objective, test our knowledge objectives. And then once those are completed, you can take the portfolio experience Again, a portfolio is such an important um, opportunity to measure and assess mastery of these competencies. So that portfolio experience then leads to the certification. Um, What we've also arranged is opportunities for those individuals uh, that go to the portfolio experience to have a mentor within our organization that would talk to them about their portfolio, spend time with them to talk to them about how they can improve it um open up doors for them opportunities either within i design or beyond and then we have a relationship with an organization that does um, recruiting in the learning design space and placement so um, those individuals that complete the certificate are actually awarded a preferred candidate status in their applicant tracking system so they'll pop to the top of the list for all those folks that are looking for learning designers like us
1: so you did that to train and uh, give like the opportunity for someone who is or wants to be an instructional designer, but not only for your own sake, because right now, and I read an article that says that the hardest job in higher ed is an instructional designer. <laughs> but now you have a, a pathway with different steps that they can learn, build skills, create work and advance their career, not only just learn, but also advance their career for the higher ed overall market. Right. Right. And the next step for us is working
0: with a couple of different universities in order to turn LX Pathway also into an entry point into a master's degree in instructional design. So um, we're talking with a number of universities that are thinking about awarding credit for LX Pathways.
1: Yeah, because you did your master's in what? My master's was in curriculum and instruction. Okay, so now a master's in 2020 or 2022 will be a master's in instructional design. Of course. So Whitney, if someone is interested in listening to us right now, could be a teacher, it could be somebody that, you know, interested in technology and higher ed, what are the steps they can take to, to learn more about the LX Pathway, the course, are there free resources, what are the steps they can take? Yeah, so just go to lxpathways.com and
0: there on the homepage there are three personas that show up, the instructional technologist, the learning architect, and online teaching. So in response to COVID, we um, created a five-module badged pathway for online teachers that's completely free. So those five courses can be taken at no charge. The Learning Architect and the Instructional uh, Instructional Technologies Pathways, the first course is free, and then the courses after that are $50 a piece, and then the portfolio course is $750 because of all the human experience that we throw into that, as
1: you can imagine, with the coaching and feedback. Of course, and how long does it take to complete this course? As you know, as an average, I guess, how long will it take? Each of the courses are
0: roughly three to five hours. Um, the portfolio is a little tough to quantify because there's a lot of assets that have to be built in order to prove competency. Um, so, all told, you could go as fast or as slow as you want because it is self-paced. Uh, the only part where there's um, uh, some sort of pacing is when you're engaged with your mentor in that portfolio experience. So I would, I would imagine somebody could probably get through it in as little as
1: a couple of months with some hard work. What does the mentor help with specifically when we talk about the portfolio course?
0: So we have a single point rubric. Um, basically, you know, it's a not, not yet or a mastered Uh, a way to take a look at each of the competencies. And so when we're reviewing that portfolio, we're using that rubric internally to really think about the areas where we could give some robust feedback to that individual, meeting with them one-on-one via Zoom or some other method of their preference, right? Phone is fine, (laughs) it's okay Mm -hmm. to go old school, Um, but we wanna spend some time with them and share some feedback on how they could either improve or if it's just so excellent, how quickly they could come to work for us.
1: Okay. And I, I guess that these are available to anyone, I guess, around the world, right? They don't have to be in the United States. That's correct. We have a lot of completers that are international at this point in time. Yes. Again, thinking of the situation and how now the online uh, teaching instructional design has emerged, I can see that there are probably many people who may not have a job or they may want to change. And that could be something if they're you know, interested in uh, higher ed and instructional design and technology. I want to go back and talk a little bit about the the approach you use. Because when someone, whether it's a teacher, educator, or faculty, says, okay, now I'm, uh, I have to or I want to move my lesson online, people think about first the technology. What is the tool I'm going to use? Where am I going to put my slides? But you talk about the student-centered experience. You talked about educator presence, so i want to take these two aspects, and i to I want I would like you to talk to us about this because I don't think these are the first things that people think about. So let's start with the student-centered experience. What do we mean by that?
0: So it's that's that's one of those things that um, it takes a little time to really mind meld with a partner. So at the beginning of an engagement with one of our university partners, we spend time working through what we call the project charter. So it's borrowed from agile design methodology. And um, what we're trying to really do is get to know what they want the program to be able to do for their students, the vision, what are their goals and objectives? What does a student who graduates from the program emulate in their world of work? What should that student be able to convey? What are those key components or messages that they should be able to bring to bear in their world of work? And so we're capturing all of that information to start with at the programmatic level, Um, institutional learning objectives, program learning objectives, not surprising there. Um, But when we get to the point of a course, we don't necessarily dive into content In early stages, we know typically what their technology ecosystem is because each institution has an LMS, a synchronous tool, um, media streaming software, right? So the, the tools are less important than the conversation about if you could do anything with your course, what would you do? What do you do so well face-to-face that you can't possibly imagine how it could be done online? So we spend the beginning parts of the conversation with the faculty building trust, helping them understand that we do have the ability to help them reconceive of these really difficult pieces um, before we even start thinking about learning objectives or assignments or activities. So we want to make sure we're kind of unpacking if it's assessment driven, and by that I just mean like midterm final or large project, we also need to have conversations about how you unpack assessment for a digital learning environment so that the student has a system of nudges and points that are helping them better understand how they're performing as they go along. We also really wanna make sure we understand if the faculty member has certain grading practices that could be challenging in online learning environments. Oftentimes faculty are comfortable with the notion of mastery learning or giving students feedback and allowing them to resubmit. Others are not. Uh, A grade can be um, a firm line that Thou shall not pass, (laughs) how it works. So um, we need to really form and, and norm around those things early with the faculty member. But we always refer back to the project charter as our initial framing for the vision for the program. So if things feel out of alignment with that overarching vision, then we make sure we have those conversations, we're communicating it, we're taking that conversation back to leadership to make sure that everybody's on the same page. So we don't end up with one class that deviates from the holistic experience that the program hopes to convey um, because there's this outlier um, piece that maybe the program directors weren't
1: um, aware of. Mm Mm-hmm. How are the students responding to that? Like what do they value more or enjoy more uh, within the learning experience? So I hear lots of stories about students
0: and and we even see emails and blog posts that they write about their experiences. I think the, the big takeaways are feedback early and often, a lot of communication, maybe even over communication in the time that we're in right now. Um, and, um, the opportunity to be able to move ahead, even if the course is paced, being able to balance their work and their life, uh, and being able to do things around the timing that works best for them so that they're not, there are are times when, when you're designing a course, there may be a a Hope that you could hide all of the modules until the week starts. That's actually not the preference of most students that we get feedback from they want to be able to see the entire learning experience on day one. They want to be able to look ahead and adjust according to their their life and, and their priorities. And that's been the bulk of the feedback that we've received is those are the things that are most beneficial to students.
1: Makes sense. Although I would not, I would not think that they, most of them, prefer to see everything. But I can see that they can. It's it's a planning. They can plan ahead. They can anticipate what's coming, and it also gives them flexibility. It's also a little bit of um, just transparency. There aren't yeah. going
0: to be any surprises later. I'm not going to change the date and time of the class. The third week of class, right? It's uh, you can see everything. I'm completely transparent with you. Um, the other thing I think that comes to mind is consistency. So if it's a program of study, having consistency from like the navigational perspective of where the buttons are, right? So you don't have to relearn where things are in the, in the learning experience. Um, and having consistency of due dates and assignments so that uh, it becomes a little bit easier to keep track of which course is which uh, when you're taking two, three, or even four courses at a time. Um, this I have a daughter that's taking classes at Southern New Hampshire so she tells me some of these stories too Um, but when you're taking multiple classes at the same time and the due dates aren't on the same day it's very easy for a student to get confused and not know which course was on Wednesday and which course was on Thursday even though it's clear in the LMS right so it's it's just a matter of let's work hard to reduce the cognitive load that students have to use in order to function inside these learning experiences. And um, we're not reducing the rigor. The rigor comes from the alignment between the learning objectives and the activities or assignments or practice that you have them do. The rigor doesn't come by making it more challenging, difficult, or harder to navigate.
1: Beautiful. Let's now uh, shift our focus to uh, faculty. So you have talked a lot, um, and I think you have developed uh, perhaps a course and some uh, written also articles about how a faculty can develop virtual presence. First of all, what do you mean by virtual presence?
0: So there's, um, there's an article from, well, there's many articles from Anderson, Garrison, and Archer related to the community of inquiry model as um, a kind of an underpinning of online learning, I like to think of it that way. Um, and they focus on teacher presence or teaching presence, uh, social presence and cognitive presence. And in an online learning environment, many faculty aren't really sure how to um, convey those pieces or to make those pieces uh, appear magically. And, um, but when you think about the face-to-face environment, it's kind of easy to make the translation. The minute a faculty member walks into the room on the first day of class, the students are sizing them up. Instructor presence just entered, right? So there are ways to infuse a course with teaching presence And it's as simple as a welcome video It's as simple as an announcement a week before the class even begins telling the students how excited you are to meet them That it's going to be a you know an incredible term here are the big things that we're going to be thinking about and doing Um, It can be as simple as encouraging your students now the social presence piece is going to come in um, encouraging your students to do video-based introductions. So let the students have some voice and some opportunity to say hello to one another and build a community. Paleth and Pratt, who wrote Building Online Learning Communities years and years ago, seminal work, um, talk a lot about the use of discussion forums and community building. And um, and when I, I did teach a MOOC, uh, it was the human MOOC, which was on humanizing uh, teaching and learning. And w- I had a, a participant in that MOOC who's had this wonderful analogy. He said, as you're um, growing your teaching presence, you're planting the seeds and you're watering them, right? And you're, you're trying to get the presence to grow in the class. As social presence starts to form and you see students begin to communicate with one another, you actually have to pair back the amount of instructor presence that you bring to bear in that environment, because if you're too communicative, you can actually kind of uh, diminish the social pieces. So um, there's a lot of work that's been done. Um, Patrick Lowenthal has written a lot about the use of uh, emoticons and how that can even diminish stress and increase the feeling of care and compassion on the part of the faculty member with the students, just that you're taking that extra step to try to connect with them. So there's a lot of work that's been done in this space uh, around presence. Mm -hmm.
1: And I think it was in March that you launched a free self-paced course that will help the faculty make the transition to online, to teaching online. What are the highlights in this course? Or what if someone takes that course and would I encourage them to take it because it's also free and available? What are they going to learn during this course?
0: So we have the online teaching pathway available on LXPathways.com. And since that course or program launched uh, on March 24th, we've had 656 individuals register for
1: it. Wow. And what do they learn or what is that, uh, let's say, the most important learnings that uh, educators and faculty can take back and apply to their work? So it
0: is this notion of presence. Uh, We have five modules that are built out. The first is really kind of the myths of online teaching and learning, uh, demystifying what is the traditional online student, right? Non-traditional online student and um and then thinking through um what is the community of inquiry what is the history of this um this philosophy and this thinking and then moving into the details around teaching presence how you can actually infuse that into your course whether it be with video like i mentioned earlier or the use of maybe avatars or or other elements that can help bring that presence to bear and then we move into social presence and the opportunity to really Figure out ways to get your students engaged with one another. Um, It's not just about group projects, because I know a lot of people don't really like group projects. There's lots of other ways you can get your students socially um, engaged. And then the final uh, module is cognitive presence and really thinking about how do you create those spaces with ill-structured problems or wicked challenges to solve so that the students are the ones doing the real thinking, the real cognitive work in order to process and create or achieve the outcomes of the the student experience.
1: Yeah, I hear a lot about experience, learning experience, student to student, student to faculty. So there's a lot about the interaction and, and how we interact or how we learn or how we teach. Yeah, I think the other thing that we really worked
0: hard to infuse into that online teaching pathway was this notion of care, compassion, empathy, um, care theory. Um, the, the noted care theorist is really Nell Noddings. And so we reference her work throughout that. Uh, it's not the again, it's not the over curriculum, but in this time, I think it's a very important component of what we've put together there.
1: So let's stay now into the present, uh, you know, COVID-19. In addition to the customers you you were working, the faculty you were working before, did you have like new uh, faculty that came to you and said, I was teaching in my classroom, now I cannot. Can you please help me, you know, teach online? We
0: have had quite an increase in requests for instructional design support uh, from a number of different university partners. Um, And so we are in another... A phase of adding additional instructional designers to the team in order to provide that support uh, to our institutional partners. So yes, it has absolutely been something where not only were our existing faculty we we're working with needing some different types of support from us in that time period, and that could have been anything from just having an ear, being able to talk to someone outside their institution where they could be frank and candid about difficult things that they were dealing with all the way to i need to know how this particular tool functions namely zoom so that i can continue my face-to-face instruction in a remote teaching paradigm Mm
1: -hmm. what would you say has been their biggest challenge for an educator especially if they haven't uh you know taught online and now they in an emergency mode they had to teach online what has been the most uh, challenging aspect of this transition i actually
0: you know knowing so many instructional designers in this space i just have to say that the instructional designers at the universities that have been supporting faculty through this transition have always had my respect i have always valued them i've been a part of that community for a long time but they um they sh- they, sh- they are absolutely positively, they've outdone themselves. It has been amazing work watching the Twitter um, posts and talking to friends and colleagues who have been working 18 and 20 hour days. It has been a, a labor of love because many of us in this instructional design space are, are very passionate about digital teaching and learning faculty have had, there have been stories of amazing faculty that just picked things up right away. And then there have been some really interesting stories of faculty who were tech averse, but their wife filmed some video clips and put them into the LMS, like really sweet, <laughs> heartwarming stories, right? Um, and I think, you know, what happened in the spring was out of necessity. And they say necessity is the mother of invention. In this case, it may be that this situation created an opportunity for us to get real creative and think strategically about what the future could look like so that we can get to a different experience that's more high quality. We, in the moment, you have to use the tools that you have to be able to continue with, um, with what you're doing with the least amount of impact. There wasn't time. In that moment to build a fully robust online learning experience that typically takes a minimum of three months. Many instructional designers will tell you it takes six. But, um, but I think it just varies based on what you're, you're putting into it. So looking forward, I think the hard part is actually now. Pivoting to Zoom was the, the least common denominator, the low-hanging fruit, if you will. But this summer, in preparation for fall, there are many faculty who are thinking, what can I do? to make my student experience better? What can I do to take my course to the next level? And there are a lot of universities that are very concerned about being branded Zoom U. They, I, they don't want the perceived value of their institution and their institutional brand diminished by the type yeah. of instruction. So I think that's a lot of what I'm hearing uh, in the higher ed landscape right now, is how do we, how do we showcase to students and to their families that we are taking the right steps to be able to design for a future that is high quality, whether it's in the classroom or needs to pivot
1: uh, to real online or blended at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what you talked about now reminds me of like, they survived in one way or another, but now it's time to thrive because if, uh, if, you know, if their mom can Zoom with your sister, I mean, is it is it all that it is? There must be something more in terms of the value, right? So, how do you plan to help? Where where can I design help them create this value as they think about going back, whether it's fully online or blended? What are what are the things you can help with? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, we do the
0: design and development of fully online and blended courses and programs. Uh, so, we're here to help in that regard. Um, When it comes to other modes of support or types of support we're offering, LX Pathways is a really great place to start. It's not on the website today, but maybe by the time this particular episode airs, we're going to be announcing a summer boot camp for faculty that'll be six weeks long. And it'll run with a mix of asynchronous and synchronous sessions to be able to kind of model effective practices and help faculty create the assets that they would need to produce in order to be able to have a course that would be more student-centered in nature by fall. So that's one piece of the puzzle. Um, With some of our institutional partners, we're actually setting up instructional design support centers where our, our team can be on call to their faculty so if they get stuck or have a question, they have that one activity they really like to do face-to-face and they can't figure out how to do it online, or that, let's say they have lab courses or exam-heavy courses or are struggling with proctoring services, who I, in the spring there was a lot of concern about proctoring services may or may not be available. So, um, so we're here to help with those sorts of things as well. So I think any institution that has a question or a need um, should feel free to reach out to us.
1: hmm what else do you see in the future of higher ed as we look into September, October and beyond that?
0: You know, there was an announcement. Um, Paul LeBlanc from Southern New Hampshire uh, put out an announcement a little while back saying that they were going to um, change the way they they handle their on-campus instruction. So f- everybody can go to campus, but the freshman class this coming year, I understand, will actually be taking their classes online but they'll be supported by the community on campus and they see that as a potential evolving model over time. We worked with them to help build out those courses so I'm super excited to see them implemented in this way. Uh, The transition from the campus being um, classroom delivery and um, lecture style to this more flexible model where you can go in and and have tutoring sessions or go see the professor and talk to them about the assignments that you're taking um, and and more of an on-demand kind of support model but still keep the community and that freshman experience that coming-of-age experience whole That's a very unique approach. And I've often kind of thought at some point in time, our high schools are going to look a little bit more like a Starbucks. And that's a little far fetched, I realize. But we need to really rethink the way we're managing teaching and learning. It doesn't need to be so rigid that you just move from room to room and continue to consume information that somebody tells you um, we need to be really thoughtful about how we can make that more blended, use our spaces really well, um, you know make it more of the community, the social presence pieces uh, that help support teaching and learning so that students can actually achieve all those outcomes and still have the opportunity to be um, in an environment where they're safe and able to socialize.
1: Very nice, beautiful. That would be nice. I love the, the social, the community aspect. Because when we think about what do we miss, uh, and I have you know friends who are, you know their sons and daughters they are you know at high school, middle school, and also university and college, that's what they miss. They miss you know like the social aspect, the interaction. Mm-hmm. But actually, they like some of the asynchronous things because they don't have to be at a certain you know in a certain classroom at three o'clock. So they like the flexibility. Yeah. But there are other aspects: the social, the community, the connection that they are missing. Yeah, there's a lot of value there. I have a I have an older daughter who
0: was in musical theater in high school and she used to be so disappointed that she had to go to school for anything other than choir and theater. <laughs> she said, I could take my academic classes online. Yeah. So I think I think we'll see that as a growing trend going forward where there's gonna be an opportunity to really kind of blend that experience. And really the value of that social piece to your point earlier is is very, very important. So if we can capitalize that on, on that in thoughtful ways, um, that could be the future.
1: Beautiful. I saw something else on your website that I found very interesting, and I want to get your thoughts. What is the course market? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. So, Course Market is actually a place where our
0: partners who don't have, and this is mainly in continuing education, this happens all the time, okay. um, they don't have a place where students can enroll and register and take classes. So continuing education is often kept separate from the student information system and the LMS, because in order to gain access into the SIS and the LMS, you have to have a student ID. And so for continuing ed, when it's non-credit, those students don't typically get a student ID. And so some of our partners wanted a place to be able to host their courses, allow students to enroll and take those courses. Many of them are self-paced um, and then be able to complete. And so all of that can happen in that one-stop shop called Course Market. One of the more interesting certificates that's on there right now is from an association um, called AIRC that we partnered with, and they actually host a certificate in international student recruitment. And that was done in a blended format. So they, they kick off at their conference in late fall, and then it continues online over the course of seven or eight months. And this year, I, I believe they'll probably end up doing that fully online, just adding in those face-to-face components digitally um, in thoughtful ways. But, um,
1: but yeah, so we're, we're, we're exploring and, and working with our partners in that regard as well. And that's what I found in drinking. And I really like that it's not only about I design or, you know, getting us, you have like the business model is more of a partnership that I design is one, but there are others that, you know, they offer competencies and knowledge and systems that they complement. It's, it's a marketplace.
0: Right. And it really got started because we were working with the Katz School of Business at the University of Pittsburgh. And they had been partnering with another organization and it was purchased. By another company. And when that company purchased that organization, they shut down the platform. So we were there at the, I guess, the right time for them to ask us, what can we do? And so uh, we, we stood up course market within 30 days. We stood up all of the CATS courses on it within 30 days, and they were back online without a blip. So um, it's just sometimes it's about uh, your partners needing help and trying to design a
1: solution to better fit their needs. Beautiful. Do you have any words of wisdom for students or for faculty who are looking, you know, in the future and they see a lot of uncertainty, they don't know how it's going to look like? What would you tell them? Um, students. Um, to
0: students, I would say persist. Remain calm and just know that continuing your education, regardless of the modality, is really important to your future. So um, don't press pause on your life. You don't get that time back.
1: Beautiful. And what about uh, educators and faculty? What would you tell them?
0: Yeah, for educators and faculty, I think it's um, right now is a time to be innovative. Uh, I can't remember... If it was a president or a, a wise woman who said, never waste a good crisis, right? There's an opportunity right now where we can innovate in really thoughtful ways. And I would encourage faculty to really innovate pedagogically, to think differently about the way they manage their classes, the way teaching and learning unfolds talk to their local instructional designer at their institution to seek support, reach out to us if we can help you. But now's the time to really think differently about how you can evolve pedagogically over the summer so that fall can be better than spring.
1: Well said. So my favorite question, what is one thing that you would like to leave your mark on within your lifetime? Oh, I hope that
0: the research that I've been able to do with colleagues, the work that we've done at iDesign has increased access, improved equity for students. We're often encouraging our partners to think long and hard about the price of education, um, the affordances of the tools and the accessibility of what's being built and I hope that leaves behind a, a, a legacy that I can be proud of because um, they can achieve all the things that it took me so long
1: to figure out that I could achieve too. Yes, but you figure them out, and you are helping them.
0: <laughs> you are helping I take, us. I want to take that yes. knowledge and help others to be able to do that, though.
1: Which is, but through your your knowledge and experience and everything you have uh, you have built and you continue to build and you know create with uh, with your team at iDesign. That's beautiful. We've talked about a lot of things. Is there any aspect of your journey or your work that you would like to to share with us that we have not talked about? I can't
0: think of something, Maria. <laughs> We've talked a lot.
1: We've talked a lot. You have a very um, unique journey, starting from a teacher and uh, all the way now to what you are doing. Somehow I see like you are like in the future already when I think of... Um, the like future of higher ed, but also future of work and giving access to more people, make it more af- affordable. I see a lot of you like already in the future, like creating the future, which is lovely. Thank you. So that was beautiful discussion. I really learned a lot from you and I'm so inspired by your journey, but also all the work you are doing. So thank you so much, Whitney. Thank you, Maria. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate the opportunity to visit with you. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can also subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zanidou. Till next time.